And the reason why it's important, or we thought it was important to have a defined sort of clinical commitment was that there's really no standard definition of what it means to be a quote-unquote clinical skincare brand. Hi, and welcome to Beauty Curious. My name is Dr. Elise Love, and I am a board-certified dermatologist. And I'm Ian Michael Crum, a licensed esthetician. Ian and I are excited to become your trusted beauty guides, from interviews with the best and brightest names in the industry to sharing our favorite expert-approved products. We are here to help you navigate the noise by giving you the facts. Are you feeling beauty curious? Let's dive into today's episode. The phrase clinical study is used ubiquitously in skincare marketing, but it can be really confusing to understand what all those numbers mean. So today, we're going to take a class in clinical studies 101, 202, and 303, so we all feel empowered and in the know when brands reference their clinical studies. So I'm super excited that we're joined today by my friend, Paul Beck, who is the founder and formulator of Matter of Fact, the award-winning clinical skincare brand behind the groundbreaking Actisolve technology that delivers high-potency Actis with greater efficiency without irritation. After becoming a K-pop star singer in the early 2000s following his studies at Harvard, Paul grew frustrated with the demanding beauty standards of the industry. This fact, combined with the limited skincare solutions available, led Paul to dedicate himself to years of research and development to create Matter of Fact's first products, the high-potency 20% vitamin C serum and a lightweight moisturizer formulated with 5% pro-vitamin B5, which launched in September 2021. Paul currently resides in Los Angeles and holds a BA in psychology from Harvard and an MBA from Wharton. Paul, thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's start at the very top of the matter. What is a clinical study? Yeah, so in the context of skincare, a clinical study is really a study that's designed to test the effects of a product on skin over a set period of time. So depending on what the product is designed to do, the study could be looking at things like skin wrinkling, dark spots, redness, dryness, or really any other aspect that can be measured through evaluation by, for example, a dermatologist or a trained expert, specialized equipment, or self-assessments, or really any combination of these three measures. That is an excellent answer to that. <laughs> I hope people are like taking notes because yeah. <laughs> we're really going to dive deep today. <laughs> so I feel like there's so much talk and people discussing clinical studies now. So I'm curious, do most brands perform clinical studies on their products? Yeah, so clinical data on products is relatively scarce, and there are a lot of understandable reasons for that. And so we've become really accustomed to trying to predict the performance of products based on things like key ingredients and their percentages. But really, a well-designed clinical study is going to tell you a lot more than just the ingredients and their percentages. So in short, no, most brands don't perform clinical studies on their products, but I understand why. For example, number one, clinical studies are really expensive. Depending on the number of participants, the length of the study, the types of measurements being made, and the equipment being used, a study can really range anywhere from, let's say, $15,000 on the very low end for a very short study with few participants to over $100,000 wow. on the high end for a four-month study with 30 or more participants, for example. And so the truth is that most small brands really can't afford the high price of running a proper clinical study with instrumental measurements and clinician grading in addition to self-assessments. And so what you'll see more commonly are consumer perception studies, which do give you some information. So it's better than nothing at all, but truly robust clinical studies are a relatively rare phenomenon in skincare overall. 
And we'll get into the different types of studies, but this is one of the facts that I am an advisor, for a matter of fact. And when I first met with Paul, this is one of the things that's a huge differentiating fact is we typically think of things with clinical studies as being products that you only get within the dermatology office, and they tend to be at a higher price point than something that you would get over at the counter. It's very uncommon to find a brand that is doing thorough, independent clinical studies that's also readily available to the consumer and that's at a relatively moderate, accessible price point. So it's one of the things that makes you guys different and is why I wanted to have you guys in for this conversation. Okay, so let's set the groundwork for our 101 part of the session. For any consumer, why does it matter for a brand to perform a clinical study on their product? Like, what is the importance around that? Yeah, I mean, I do want to start with sometimes a clinical study may not be necessary, depending on what kind of product you're developing, right? So with some types of products, what someone might be looking for is a particular sensorial experience or scent. And as long as the product performs at a certain base level, they're satisfied. So if you don't have sensitive skin and you're looking for a hand wash or a body lotion, your first priority may be, does it feel and smell good? And then great, right? Maybe a clinical study isn't really necessary for that type of product. But when you're addressing very specific skin concerns, clinical studies are one of the best ways to determine whether a product will work for you or not. So that's why it matters for the consumer of skincare products, right? So if you're concerned with things like wrinkling, dark spots, very dry or irritated skin, bumpy texture, clogged pores, acne. You know, these are types of concerns that often cause a lot of stress and heartache for folks when they're trying to find products that will work for them. And they can spend a lot of time and money before being able to find a solution. And a well-designed clinical study on a final formula can really help demonstrate what a product is capable and just as importantly, not capable of and in what time frame, and therefore help someone to make an informed, relatively faster, easier decision. That is a great point. I think that in just reflecting what you said, it's essentially if what you're looking for is an immediate effect, you really don't need a clinical study because it's like when you use the hand wash, do your hands feel clean? Do you like the way it smells? When you put on a moisturizer, does your skin stay moisturized? But it's more when you're getting into, you need to use this product for four months to start to see results. It's essentially the clinical study is trying to predict that for you. So if they've studied the product and put it on other people's skin, whose skin is reflective of yours for four months, then you can feel a little bit more confident versus, you know, I do feel like sometimes people feel like they're spending so much money and so much time on just random products based off of marketing, but not necessarily based off of actual data. And they may work, they may not work. So related to matter of fact, how many of your products have clinical studies behind them? So we currently have five products, hopefully soon to be more, but all (laughs) five of our products have been clinically tested. So all five Final formulas have been clinically tested. We're not just relying on data on the ingredients themselves, for example. And so we perform clinicals on all formulas. That's very impressive. (laughs) That is very impressive. And I loved the teaser alert. You're like, hopefully soon more. I'm like, oh, what's coming next? (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to follow along. (laughs) So what is the matter of fact clinical commitment and why does it exist? Yeah, so our 
clinical commitment has a few different components. And so the first one is, of course, we want to have as unbiased of an approach as possible. So all of our clinical studies are run by independent third-party labs. We love our products, that's why we made them, but we don't want our positive feelings to influence the results in any way, right? So it's important that they're run by third-party independent labs. And then, of course, they're blinded so that the participants don't know anything about the products and don't know what brand it's from as the study is ongoing. The second component of the clinical commitment is, of course, we want to be reflective of the real world. And so we are in the U.S., we're selling products in the U.S., and we have a population here that has a wide range of skin tones. And so we want to make sure that we test on that wide range of skin tones to reflect the real world. And so we commit to always testing Fitzpatrick types two through five. So that's light to dark skin tones. And when we can find them, we try to include types one, the lightest of light skin tones, and type sixes, the richest of rich skin tones when possible. And then of course, the third component of our clinical commitment is we want to measure results in three different ways, right? So we want to see if a trained expert, such as a dermatologist, can see a difference in skin before and after treatment. If we can measure that difference objectively through instruments or specialized equipment. And then also, can the subject or participant themselves, can they see a difference in their skin as well? And if those three things are all in agreement, then we can feel pretty confident that the effect that we're seeing is real. And the reason why it's important, or we thought it was important to have a defined sort of clinical commitment was that there's really no standard definition of what it means to be a quote-unquote clinical skincare brand. And so we wanted to make sure that we defined it clearly so people knew the standard to which we were conducting our clinical studies. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, that's so above and beyond. And then I guess this isn't officially part of your commitment, but one of the things that stands out to me is that when you go to your website, it's very clear about how the clinical studies were performed and how the results were obtained, because I feel like that's often abstract. And so we will kind of help people understand those results and how they come about. But first, I think that there are a few talking points that we should understand before we get into how clinical studies are performed. So we'll kind of break down these like few points. So the first one is the concept of blinded versus non-blinded studies. You mentioned that yours are always blinded. So walk us through that. Yeah, so blinding really refers to concealing certain information from study participants and researchers in order to minimize bias. So, you know, it sounds kind of esoteric, but for example, you don't want participants and researchers to know what brand or product is being tested by putting it in nondescript packaging without the name of the brand or a description or the ingredients. Because let's say someone has an affinity towards a brand and most people are friendly and most people are cooperative. So they're going to want to say positive things about something if they know where it's coming from and they're associating it with a certain person or a group of people. So we want to make sure that that information is concealed from the participants and the researchers so bias doesn't start to creep in. And also in the case that there are multiple arms of a study, so let's say, for example, you're testing an active group with a product, you're testing a placebo group with just the vehicle. So it's sort of the formula without any of the active ingredients. Or you're pitting two different products against each other. Or sometimes you have three arms and so you're doing all three at the same time. Your product, a reference product, and a placebo. We wouldn't want the researchers or subjects to know which group they're in because that would probably influence their actions or perceptions of the product. And then again, introduce bias into 
the study. So that's really the goal of blinding, to reduce or minimize that bias. And both full-blown clinicals and consumer perception studies, which we talked a little bit about earlier, can be blinded or non-blinded, right? And that's, I think, a point that sometimes gets lost is that even consumer perception studies have different levels of rigor. And so more rigorous consumer perception studies will blind participants so that any positive or negative feelings they may have about a brand aren't reflected in their answers to the questionnaire at the end of, say, for example, two weeks of using the product when they're asked about whether they saw a difference in various aspects of skin. It kind of reminds me of those videos where it's like a box and soda and then someone like sips the two different sodas and it's like, is it Coke or Pepsi or like which one tastes better? It's kind of like the idea of a very simple version of blinding. Obviously, it gets more complex than that. Yeah, or like testing out the different seltzers or sparkling waters, which I feel like I can definitely do. But yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's like, can you do it if it's not labeled San Pellegrino? Yeah, I think one of the reasons we really wanted to do this episode was there are brands, I won't name them, that kind of put studies and new numbers at the forefront of their product marketing. And it's, you know, like 95% thought your eyelashes looked better, whatever the claim is. And I think explaining this difference of even those can be blinded or not blinded, you know, it could just be a group of consumers knowing what they're testing and essentially it could kind of be kind of skewed to get the favorable numbers that get used in the marketing then. Exactly. I mean, if you ask 20 of your family members and friends who know about all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into the development of a product and then say, hey, use this for two weeks and then fill out this questionnaire. Of course, because they love you and they care about you. They're going to want to be able to give you positive feedback as long as they really feel that it's not against their real opinion, right? So if it's neutral, then they'll lean more positive, for example. And that wouldn't be a blinded approach to conducting consumer perception study, whereas if you did it through a third-party consumer perception company, for example, right? And so they hide that information about what brand and what product is being tested, then you may get something that's a little bit less biased. Exactly. Okay, so the second important concept is study power, which is essentially how many people are enrolled in a study. And so let's talk about that. Yes, exactly. So study power is sometimes also referred to as study sensitivity. And both terms give us a hint at what it's referring to. So it's basically the chance that you'll detect an effect when there actually is one. So for example, if someone's developed product A, and let's say we're all knowing beings, and we know that this product actually does have an effect on, let's say, dark spots, a study with sufficient power will be able to actually detect that. And stop me if I start getting into too much jargon, but I think it's important. I think we're like in 202 by now, so (laughs) we can get a little more jargony. (laughs) So there are two really important terms to talk through. And, you know, it sounds jargony at first, but once you start diving into them, you can really understand why they're important. So type one and type two errors, right? These are the kinds of errors that researchers are trying to avoid when they're running a study. And so type one error is also known as a false positive, right? So you conclude that product A has an effect on dark spots when it actually doesn't. Obviously, that's something that you want to avoid as a researcher. And then type two errors are false negatives, meaning that you conclude that product A does not have an effect 
on dark spots when it actually does. And so you want your study to have enough power or sensitivity to actually be able to detect an effect of the treatment if it actually has that effect. And it's mainly influenced, as you said, Dr. Love, by sample size. But two other things that are also relevant are effect size and significance level. And so sample size is, of course, referring to the number of participants that you enroll into a study. And so the goal especially within skincare, is often to have 25 or more subjects complete a study. And so in order to get to that final number, usually we have to recruit quite a number of extra participants, knowing that many of them may not complete the study. So if you're aiming for 25, and especially if you have a very long study, let's say four months, then you may enroll 45, 50 subjects, expecting that many of the participants will not complete the study for you know, a variety of reasons. Sometimes they don't follow instructions, and so they're removed from the study. Sometimes they don't show up to the appointments to check in with the clinicians and have their skin evaluated. Sometimes life happens, and so pregnancy, an illness, a relocation, those sorts of factors come into the picture, and the participants are no longer able to continue in the study. And so, of course, the longer the study is, generally the higher the rate of dropouts. And then also depending on the effect on skin that you're studying, right, a study length may be just a few hours if you're looking at maybe short-term hydration, for example, or again, four or more months if you're looking at very stubborn skin concerns like wrinkling or skin discolorations, right? And so the sample size makes a difference. The bigger the sample size, the more power or sensitivity your study is going to have. And that's important because when we're thinking about you want enough power to detect the effect, but what's also important is that you understand that the size of the effect also has influence on this as well. So the smaller the effect you're studying, the more power or sensitivity you need in the study to detect that effect. But if the effect is large, then it still may be picked up in a study with lower power and a smaller sample size. So for example, if ingredient A indeed has a positive effect on wrinkling, but the effect is very small, you may need a very, very, very big sample size to pick up on that effect in a study. And therefore, a very, very big, expensive study, which, you know, sometimes brands can't afford. And on the other hand, if ingredient B also has a positive effect on wrinkling, but the effect is pretty big, then you have a better chance of picking up on that effect even with a relatively small sample size in the study. So sometimes people are surprised to see that sample sizes of published skincare studies are often in the range of 20 to 50 and wonder why it wasn't larger. Of course, the biggest factor affecting sampling size is budget. The more subjects, the more expensive the study. And as I mentioned earlier, even studies aiming to have 30 subjects at the end of the study can be extremely expensive because you're ending up recruiting more like 50 or 60 subjects. And also, if the effect size is large enough to be picked up in a sample size of, say, 25 or 30 participants, then there's a chance that the effect is relatively large, which is a good thing for the consumer. And then, of course, the last concept around power is significance level. And so when you hear in clinical results, for example, product A had a significant effect on wrinkling or a significant effect on dark spots, or especially if you hear a statistically significant effect on dark spots or wrinkling, then what this is referring to is a kind of statistical analysis that's done to calculate the probability of a false positive and make sure that that probability is less than, it's usually set at 5%. So when you see an effect that you feel confident 
incident that the analysis has been done to determine that a 95% probability that that was due to the product actually having an effect and less than a 5% chance that it was due to random chance. And so those are some concepts around study power or sensitivity that I think are important to understand. I learned something. I never think about effect size when I am looking at skincare studies. So now I'm even going to look at things differently. Okay, so the next concept is diversity, which looks at who is actually in the study. And so I think this is an area, there's been a lot of improvement in like the past few years, but I remember going to dermatology conferences and people would present this laser and say like, this laser has amazing results. Like no one ever gets post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Like it is just the best thing on the market. And I would raise my hand and say like, who was in the study? And they would say Fitzpatrick one through three, which is essentially only white people. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, they didn't get post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, but there's a whole like huge percentage of the population that we're excluding with that. So talk to me a little bit about that in terms of skincare. Yes, I mean, the point that you bring up, unfortunately, has been quite pervasive. And it's especially frustrating sometimes because the richer the skin tone, the higher likelihood that that individual is going to suffer from things like post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, so a darkness after an injury to the skin that occurs. And so they're the most often in need of good solutions for treatments targeting dark spots and other discolorations, but then least likely to be included in a study (laughs) that's actually testing the effect of a product designed to do exactly that, right? And so it can be very frustrating, but really this boils down to really believing, committing to the idea that it's helpful to reflect the world that you're living in, right? So in skincare, if you're selling to a certain population of people and you're conducting a clinical study, it's probably wise to test in a range of participants that reflect that population, right? So again, here in the US, we have a wide range of skin tones in our population. And so if you're claiming that your product works for a wide range of skin tones, and especially if it's targeted for a concern that's especially salient and relevant for those with richer skin tones, then it's incredibly helpful to actually test that product on the range of skin tones that you're selling to in order to make sure that the product performs as you intended it to. Yes, exactly. And then last important concept before we get to the juice, I wanted to bring up the concept of bias. So bias is essentially an unnoticed variable that is influencing results. And I, one of the examples that I always think about is the marshmallow study was like such a like renowned study where the kid has to sit with a marshmallow. And it's like, if you cannot eat this marshmallow for 15 minutes, then you can have two marshmallows. And there was all this data about kids who didn't eat the marshmallow and how they became significantly more successful. And then in the past few years, it's come out that if you actually look at the data, kids who didn't eat the marshmallow just had higher socioeconomic backgrounds. And so the reason they didn't eat the marshmallow was because they had a lot of marshmallows at home and like they weren't hungry versus the kids that ate the marshmallow were like, oh, this is like a huge treat and I don't get presented with this often. And so talk to me about bias in skincare. 
Yes. So when running a study, there are lots of ways that bias can sometimes creep into a study, whether it's a clinical study or consumer perception study. And most of the time, I'd say it's not with bad intention. It's usually just an oversight. But one of the main sources of that is what you just described, which is looking at who's participating in the study, right? Selecting participants in a way that may intentionally or unintentionally promote bias. So if you're running a consumer perception study, in addition to the bias that may be involved in not blinding participants to what brand the product is from or what the product contains, you may end up choosing participants out of a pool of people that may include friends, family, other folks who might feel motivated to give positive feedback on your product's probably because they love and care about you, right? So it's coming from a good place. But that's one of the easiest ways for a bias to creep in is to choose the participants of a study in a particular way. And so in your study, looking at different children from different backgrounds and not taking into consideration that those different backgrounds may then bring in other confounding factors that may affect their behavior in a particular study. And so that's something that you might want to control for. And other ways that bias can creep in is, of course, you know, as we discussed before, not blinding the participants to what brand is being tested. Because, you know, people most of the time, they want to cooperate with others. And then, of course, that's related to another way of introducing bias into a study, which is letting the participants know what the goal of a product is, right? If someone knows that a product is designed to improve wrinkling, they'll probably answer a question in a way that is maybe more positive, right? They're more likely to say, yes, this did improve my wrinkling after four weeks because I know it was designed to. Whereas if you're running a study and the participants don't know what the product is intended to do, and then you're sending a questionnaire across all aspects of skin, not just wrinkling, but skin blemishes and dryness and irritation and so on and so forth, it's much harder for the participants to know what the intention of the research study is, and therefore they're less likely to be motivated to try to read your mind and give you the answer that they hope that you want to hear. The other thing I would say in terms of bias with skincare is seasonality. I think that this becomes relevant with pigmentation. So if you start a study looking at how our product helps with pigmentation in July, August in New York, and then you do the study until January, February, it's like, yeah, everyone's pigmentation definitely got better. But is it because there's less UV or is it because the product's actually making a significant difference? It's hard to avoid seasons if you're doing a long study, but that's definitely like one thing that as a germ, we're always looking at. We're like, what are the dates of this? It's almost like someone would have to just be like in a box with no sunlight before the study and after the study. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a really a point to mention about clinical studies, actually, is like clinical studies are controlled environments. And so a really stringent clinical study should tell someone like, these are the other products that you use. This is how much of the product you apply. This is how often you apply it. But the reality is the real world is always going to be a little different. So we look at clinical studies for a little bit of a prediction. Sometimes things don't perform the same as a clinical study, and that could be better or worse. Oh, yes. I mean, you're getting into all the fun details. <laughs> there are many ways that you can try to control those factors, right? And it's best practice to try to incorporate as many of them as possible. And so you mentioned seasonality. And so making sure that for the duration of the study, and oftentimes 
before, for a certain duration before the study as well, that participants are using sunscreen on a daily basis so that you're reducing the effect of seasonality and sun exposure on the effects of what you're seeing in the course of the study. Selecting participants not just for potential bias with a brand, for example, but also you don't want to include those who may have had, for example, light or laser treatments within the last six to 12 months, have been on a prescription retinoid, such as tretinoin for the last six to 12 months, have had a chemical peel in the last six to 12 months, because you may see improvements in their skin that are residual improvements from that treatment from before. And you don't want to benefit from those effects when it's really coming from a separate treatment and not the product itself. And so we always exclude participants who have had those sorts of treatments in the last six months before the start of the study. Of course, stopping all skincare products for what we call a washout period, quote unquote, so two to four weeks, having them use nothing active in their routine to get their skin back to sort of a baseline. And I'm trying to think of all of the other ways. Of course, very, very, very detailed instructions of product usage for the duration of the study. All participants using, for example, the same cleanser, the same sunscreen, the same moisturizer, in addition to whatever active treatment, active product that we're giving them that we're testing to make it as uniform as possible. And Ian, you said, you know, we we can't put people in a white box, (laughs) a a cage in a lab, so to speak, but we can implement as many measures as possible to really try to reduce and minimize those outside potential confounding factors as much as possible. And that's something that, of course, we just consider to be a baseline in the clinical studies that we run. Well, I'm pretty much disqualified from participating in a clinical study because I, I feel like <laughs> I'm like always always doing, <laughs> always doing something to my face. So sadly, I guess I can't volunteer for this. But I did want to kind of just recap and do our like 202 class final exam notes because I know we've been discussing a lot and it's amazing. I'm learning a lot. So thank you, Paul. But I just kind of want to do a little recap and review what we just covered. So reminder to everyone listening, it's so important to know that not every clinical study is created equal. It matters who the people in the study are, how they're grading the study, that it's blinded. And it also matters how many people are in the study and their background, where they come from, it's always important to remember to have a large, more diverse, double-blinded study to minimize that bias that we spoke about, while smaller studies who leave out entire sections of populations can inherently contain that bias. And also, it's important to have all those controls that Paul just spoke upon about using the same cleanser and moisturizer and, and other products surrounding so researchers can hone in on this one product or one ingredient is doing what they're studying. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Love so we can go on to our next level of class. All right. So now let's actually talk about the different types of studies. And I think the simplest way to talk about clinical studies is to break down the different endpoints or results that consumers are seeing. So we'll go through the below list. It's only three things, guys, so it won't be long. And we'll provide just like a brief overview of how this data is collected. Okay, so how is the background of the study built if a brand reports that 100% of users agreed after four weeks that skin texture was smoother and skin tone was brighter? Yes, so this sounds like a self-assessment or a consumer perception 
figure, right? In this case, after four weeks of usage, users were asked to fill out a questionnaire about their experience. And if they agree that they sound improvement in texture and tone, they would say yes, sometimes it's on a scale, right? Maybe somewhat agree, strongly agree, slightly disagree, strongly disagree, so on and so forth. And this kind of figure is so often used because it's so easy to understand for the consumer. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? In a well-designed study, ideally, of course, the participants would have been selected in a way that minimized bias, right? So ideally, this would have been run by a third-party independent lab, and participants would not have been selected from a pool of family and friends. And it would have also been blinded, right? So that participants didn't know anything about the brand or product that was being tested. And so this is a really good baseline and the kind of figure that I think most skincare consumers are most familiar with. It's a self-assessment or consumer perception kind of design that leads to this kind of claim. What about if they say a 20% reduction in pigmentation after eight weeks? So this sort of claim could be one of two things. It could have been done through clinician grading or expert grading or through instrumental measurements, right? So clinician grading is, of course, asking a dermatologist or other trained Hi. expert, <laughs> such as Dr. Love, <laughs> to grade, for example, if it was dark spots that was being studied, the severity of those dark spots on some sort of scale, usually a five or seven point scale that's predetermined to determine the severity. And, you know, you would be looking at before and after treatment at every single time check of a study. So if it's a 12-week study, it might be baseline measurements by the clinician and then a checkpoint at four weeks, eight weeks, and then 12 weeks. And so, you know, seeing that after eight weeks, that if it were a five-point scale, on average, those clinicians were grading a one-point improvement in pigmentation. So it could be that. It could also be instrumental measurements that were taken, right? And so this is a case in which you use a specialized piece of equipment, such as a chromometer or a Vizia CR device that might have been used to objectively and precisely measure changes in color. And it came out to be, for example, a 20% improvement at this eight-week checkpoint. And so this kind of figure, you know, ideally there would be some sort of note with an asterisk saying, as measured by clinician grading or as measured by a chromometer or a Vizia CR device. That would be the way that you would get to a claim such as this. Cool. Some people may have seen the Vizia, but it's like that device at some med spas or derm offices. We have that it in our office. I love it. Scans your face. And I think it's eight different photos or about that and shows the different grading. So yeah. that's what he's referencing for anyone listening. You may have had your face scanned with one at, at a derm office I can before. I post my results on Insta. Okay. Well, Dr. Love's, Love's going to, <laughs> I, I should come get mine scanned too. We'll like make oh, yeah. it like a, we'll start posting our Vizia results. Okay. So, and lastly, what about when they say fine lines and wrinkles were noticeably improved? So again, this could have been done either through clinician grading, right? A dermatologist or other expert using a scale to grade skin on fine lines and wrinkling or through instrumental measurements. Again, using something like a Vizia CR device to measure things like wrinkle intensity or wrinkle visibility. The word noticeably stands out to me with this particular figure because very easily the word noticeably could have been swapped for the word significantly right, which we discussed earlier. And that may be referring to the fact that a statistical analysis had been done to demonstrate 
statistical significance. Or again, P is less than 0.05, meaning that the positive effect that was observed had a less than 5% chance of being a false positive, right? So you can feel confident that the study was run in a thoughtful and robust way to trust the results. And so significantly improved or noticeably improved, that sort of language is probably referring to some sort of statistical analysis that was done to make sure that it was a robust design and a real effect that you're seeing. I like that noticeably stood out to you because I took that figure from your website. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would say while I was perusing your website that I'm obviously very familiar with, but one thing I really love about the website is if you go to the products, you have broken down the clinical studies into how you've done them, like what is consumer perception, what is instrument-based results, and what is expert grading. And then you've also, with every point, said as graded by Vizia or as determined by a consumer perception study. And I think that that's what we're missing in a lot of quote-unquote clinical studies that we're seeing just all over the place is you get this tiny piece of data or this tiny sentence or this tiny summary. And it actually has no meaning if you don't have the rest of the sentence or the rest of the background. And so I hope that this conversation is helping people to understand, you know, if someone's really doing the work, this is how it's going to look. And again, like you said, it's okay that you're not doing like a super intense study on every single product, but it's important not to make that perception. (laughs) We all just want to be really honest about what's being done. And we hope after listening to this episode, you feel empowered to be able to read that data. Yeah. And then you can like DM brands and be like, I'm sorry, this is missing this information. Can you please share it with me? And then maybe they will and we'll all have all of this visibility and I'd be really happy. So now I think As just a nice conclusion, I think that we should walk through a real world example of how, let's talk about example, your wrinkle and texture concentrate. So how is that conceptualized? When is testing done versus when does it hit the market? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, from concept to production, it's a long timeline. When I was thinking about this particular formula, and the name of the product was probably one of the actually the last things that was determined. So it was it had a code name for most of its life. It actually came from a conversation I was having with a dermatologist. And we were talking about a prescription combination therapy drug called Triluma, which is, of course, a combination of hydroquinone, tretinoin, and a fluorinated steroid. And it's used to treat serum patches of pigmentation such as melasma right and and she was describing the synergy between the ingredients, particularly between the tretinoin and the hydroquinone, and how they were, quote-unquote, attacking the problem from multiple angles, so to speak, for a greater clinical effect, this combination therapy effect. And so I started thinking about whether maybe a similar approach, a similar, quote-unquote, combination therapy approach might be useful, not just in a drug context, but in a cosmetic context as well. And so I'd already developed a system for, of course, vitamin C that help stabilize and deliver to skin. But I also had some delivery systems that I've been working on for retinol that reduce its drying and irritating effects and for azelaic acid to minimize sometimes unpleasant sensations like itching and burning that can be associated with that ingredient. And so I thought, okay, maybe I could create a really powerful product with all three ingredients 
in the formula. And these ingredients are all very difficult to work with individually. And so they've never really been combined in meaningful concentrations into a single formula before. So I spent time in the lab, of course, finalizing the formula. And it was very time consuming because it's a waterless emulsion. It was a polyol or sugar alcohol phase and an oil or silicone phase that I was trying to stabilize into one shelf-stable formula, a polyol in silicone emulsion. And those are extremely unusual and you don't really find them on the market. So there really weren't any guidelines I could use on how to make and stabilize emulsions like this. And so it took a lot of experimentation to get the formula right. And then once the formula was finalized, of course, there's a battery of preclinical tests that you probably want to perform before you run a full-blown clinical test. And that's because of safety. Right. So you want to test for, of course, stability to make sure that the product holds together for the shelf life of the product. But you want to test for irritation and allergenicity potential. Right. And so you usually do that through what's called a human repeat insult patch test. And so under specific conditions, seeing whether the product causes skin redness, skin swelling, so on and so forth. And that'll give you an idea of generally how irritating or sensitizing the product is in an acute and chronic test scenario. And then also, this is not as common for especially small brands to do, but we always want to perform photoallergenicity and phototoxicity testing, meaning maybe it's not going to cause any reactions in the absence of sunlight, but maybe the sunlight may interact with some of the ingredients in the formula and cause a reaction. And so we want to do that testing, you know, before we conduct a clinical test. And then, of course, preservative efficacy testing, knowing that the product is not going to go moldy or be a farm for bacteria during the course of the study, because that could be very, very dangerous to the end user. And so after running all of those preclinical tests, which usually even in an optimistic scenario where you're running them all at the same time, it's still going to take probably three to four months to get all of that preclinical testing. And then for this product, once we got to the clinical study phase, we're looking at ingredients like retinol, vitamin C, acylic acid, that we do have some existing published literature on. And then we're looking at effects like skin wrinkling and skin discolorations where we would want to see the effect over a long period of time. So we put this product through a 16-week study or about four months, right? And really wanted to understand what the formula was capable of. So we were measuring a whole host of things, wrinkling, dark spot intensity, skin tone evenness, skin texture, skin firmness, elasticity, and more, right? And so in addition to, of course, you know, self-assessments, which is sort of a baseline, we had expert grading and instrumental measurements as well, right? And those instruments that we used were things like a hutometer to measure skin firmness and elasticity. And then, of course, a Vizia CR device to measure dark spot intensity and wrinkle visibility, wrinkle occupancy rate, measures such as those. And then, of course, because the study was so long, four months, we wanted to end the study with about 30 participants having completed it. So we had this independent lab that we were working with recruit for many extra participants, knowing that since you know the study was so long that we'd have a lot of dropouts. And so I think we ended up recruiting, I think, about probably about 45 participants. And we ended the study with just shy of 30, 29 participants. 
And so that was sort of how it was run. And so, of course, that study takes about, I don't know, one to two months to set up to make sure that all the products are housed in non-strip packaging so that the study is blinded, making sure that it gets to the study site, having everything set up, you know, looking at all the protocols to make sure that everything is clean as a whistle, and then time afterward for all the data to be analyzed statistically. And so also the study is four months, it's probably six to seven months in total to get the study completed, all the data in and analyzed. And that informed, of course, how we talk about the product, because it's based on the results of the clinical study. So we know now through that clinical study what this formula is capable of and what time frame, and then we can introduce it to the world. That's super impressive. And I think people see these numbers on various brands marketing and don't process like all that legwork and dedication behind like getting that data and evidence for the products that you're selling. I know we've talked a lot about clinical data and stability was mentioned a bit earlier. So we can't get off this episode without discussing your stability data for your brightening and firming serum. How did you study stability and what does that end up meaning for the consumer? Yes. So a standard stability test runs a formula through various, sometimes extreme conditions to understand how it affects the appearance, the color, the odor of the product. So that's the sort of standard for, I think, all products in the market probably have gone through or should go through that sort of basic stability testing. And that's, you know, putting it in an oven at 40 degrees Celsius for 12 weeks to simulate two years at room temperature or 45 degrees Celsius for 12 weeks to simulate three years at room temperature, putting it through freeze thaw tests, usually through three or more cycles of freezing and thawing the product to make sure that the product can withstand that kind of extreme temperature change. Because of course, you know, if products are being shipped across the country at different times of the year, it may experience those sorts of conditions. But of course, when you're looking at a product that has a fragile ingredient such as vitamin C, that's known to degrade rather quickly under certain conditions, you know, exposure to light, exposure to water, but especially exposure to water, then of course you want to go one step further. In addition to looking at the color and the change in color, odor, appearance, all of those things, also testing how much vitamin C is left in the product at each of those time points as well. And so we performed stability testing on our vitamin C formula in a number of different ways. So we did accelerated stability testing, right? Elevating it to four degrees Celsius and setting it for 12 weeks to simulate two years, and then taking samples at each time point and sending it to an independent lab to test how much vitamin C was left in those formulas being tested, but also real-time stability testing. So keeping the formulas at room temperature and final packaging and testing it in real time to see how closely our real-time testing numbers correlated with that accelerated testing. And understandably, real-time testing takes a long time because you can't accelerate it, right? So if you want to test it over two years, it takes two years. And so, you know, we've done that testing and we're continuing to do it for future batches as well. And stability of an ingredient such as vitamin C is important because it's often used as a proxy for usually clinical efficacy, right? Saying, hey, if this much is left in the product, then it's probably still effective. And so we did the stability testing, accelerated real-time we used, I believe, four different labs so that we could make sure that there wasn't any bias in any of the independent labs that we were using, right? So a round-robin approach with multiple labs. But then we went one step further because we thought, hey, 
Stability is really just a proxy for clinical efficacy. And we have a clinical study that we've done on the fresh product to show its statistically significant effects. And now we know what that means on dark spots and wrinkling. But how about we take product near the end of its shelf life and let's run it through a separate independent clinical study and see how it performs and compare it to the study done on fresh product. And so we actually did that, right, on fresh and aged product near the end of its two-year shelf life, and were able to demonstrate that there was no diminishment in clinical efficacy. And to our knowledge, we are the first and only technology to demonstrate efficacy across the shelf life of a product. And so we thought that might be exciting for other people to see as well. And so we submitted our data for publication in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, a peer-reviewed high-impact medical journal. It's one of the and hardest dermatology journals to publish in. We were you so, won't say that. so happy. <laughs> <laughs> we were so happy. We were so humbled and excited that our data was published in the journal, our stability and our clinical efficacy data. And then we were actually invited to share that research at their international conference, International Societies of Investigative Dermatology Conference in Tokyo this past May. We were able to share our stability and clinical efficacy data with the wider research community. And so that was a real privilege for us. That's a lot of steps. And I have to give it to you <laughs> for being like, let's take the, I mean, it's still completely safe because it's within the shelf life, but yeah. take the aged product and test it. I've never heard of a brand that did that. That's extremely impressive because one of the highest concerns that consumers have with L-ascorbic acid is is it going to be stable once I start using it? And so not only do you guys have this 20% L-ascorbic acid, which is very difficult to find, you have it in the special formulation and you've shown that it's stable over definitely longer than it will take the consumer to use the product. So yeah, kudos to you. It's very impressive. Thank you. I mean, we were excited to do the work and then share it with everyone. And I will say just in terms of the SID, in terms of the conference, there's all different types of bias, but that is a heavy science audience. They are there specifically for data and they're very critical of data. They're not beauty people. And so it's not like, oh, I'm super excited for this brand or I'm super excited for this new product to come out. They're like, oh, this is a new formula and I'm very interested in L-ascorbic acid. I'm really interested in the stability. And so they're really interested in the science that you're presenting, not necessarily who you are or why you even care. <laughs> so again, that's very, very impressive that they invited you to present. So now we're going to get to, just to finish things out, we're going to do our speed round. These are questions that... You'll answer quickly, but like as thoroughly as you think should be answered, but they're a little bit lighter. I feel bad asking, but if you <laughs> had to pick your favorite child, aka your favorite product out of the ones you've created, which one would it be? Oh, I have very acne-prone, congestion-prone skin. And so my favorite product is resurfacing and hydrating serum because it's what I need to use the most often to keep my congestion in check. Easy. He has a yeah. He, he was ready. He wow. was ready with that one. Don't let the other products hear you. <laughs> Speaking of products, how many of your products have patents, and like why? Tell me about that. 
Yes. So all five of our products have patent pending technologies behind them. And of course, the idea of patents is that they're a legal monopoly that lasts for 20 years in exchange for educating the public on exactly how the technology works. And the idea is that once a patent expires, everyone gets a benefit from the technology. And so I, I think probably the most understandable, the easiest example that people may be familiar with is drugs, right? So if you've ever seen a popular prescription drug all of a sudden be available as a more affordable generic, the chances are that the patent has expired. And so now that, that technology is available to everyone. And that happens with cosmetic ingredients too, right? So sometimes you'll see an explosion of a particular ingredient in the market and wonder what was behind that trend. And sometimes it's because the ingredient was only available through one particular brand when the patent was still active. But once it expired, it became available to all brands to use. For us, it was important because we were trying to develop lots of interesting new ways to deliver these wonderful ingredients of skin. But many of them are so finicky to work with, either because they're unstable or they're irritating, or they're hard to deliver to skin, or some combination of two or more of those factors. And so we thought, okay, we put a lot of work into developing these delivery systems. Let's patent them so A, we can protect our IP, but even more importantly, that B, in 20 years, when those patents expire, everyone gets to benefit from them. And so I hope that one day we're seeing that to sell technology behind, say, for example, our vitamin C product, available in 20 years at all price points and accessible to everyone because it's become a table stakes technology. And so that's our intention of trying to contribute to innovation in the skincare space. And then part of that, of course, making it accessible after the patents expire. I love that. It's like you're going to help people's career journeys in the future. Speaking of career journey, I know you were a K-pop star. Now you're a skincare brand founder. I'm curious. What would be next if you decide to leave skincare or you want to start a hobby? What would you kind of do if you weren't doing this? Oh, my goodness. So actually, I love, love, love making things with my hands, which is why I spend most of my time in the lab. But sometimes even I feel a little bit skincared out, if you will, in the lab. But I still want to decompress by making something. And so I've been playing a lot with fragrances recently. Ooh. And so Teaser alert. <laughs> yeah. I love fragrance. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so in the future, you know, I think it might be really fun to explore fine fragrance. And already I, I've just been making things for fun for teammates and for friends and for family, understanding what people's favorite fragrances are and then trying to make something that they might like. Well, Elise and I do love fragrance. So just putting it out. I like, was like, <laughs> that is, I can't imagine if someone was like, I was thinking of you and made this fragrance. Like, that that's is so cool. So sweet. Okay, last question. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. So we've been talking about clinical studies all, all day. We all understand it. We all have our master's in stats. If you had to pick one, and you don't have to, it's a podcast, you can walk away. What type of clinical study do you think is the most relevant to the consumer? Oh, gosh, that's a really... Hard question. We like because, to save the tough one for the yeah. last. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they all have their advantages and disadvantages, right? And so, for example, consumer perception or self-assessments are really useful to the consumer because they're easy to understand, right? It's easy for them to comprehend what that figure means. Of course, the potential disadvantage of a consumer perception or self-assessment figure is that it's not as objective as one would hope. 
And then, of course, the other measures have sort of the flip of that, right? And so a trained expert, a dermatologist or a Vizia CR device or, you know, photometer or whatever it might be, may be able to detect really small differences. And so you can get to an effect that seems great, a statistically significant effect. But for a consumer who's not trained, they may not be able to detect the difference in their own skin looking in the mirror. And so I don't know if this is a non-answer answer, but I think the best is a combination of all three, right? To have the consumer perception be in agreement with the instrumental measurements and also the clinician grading. If all of those three things are saying the same thing, right? product A showed improvements, visible improvements in this aspect of skin, then you can be pretty confident that the study is demonstrating that the product can perform in the way that you hope it can and that it may be worth you spending your hard-earned money testing that product out. And so I really think a combination of all three is sort of the holy grail trifecta for a consumer trying to understand the strength of a clinical study. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. I feel like it's germs were a little bit of data snobs. And so I'm always like objective data, objective data. But you just reminded me that when patients come into the office, I don't say like, oh, I think you're better. I say, you know, how do you feel? And so, yeah, I think that all of those things together are extremely important. More is more in terms of clinical studies. Yes, just give us more. Give us all. Give us give us. This. Give us all the studies you can do, (laughs) which you clearly are doing. So good as to you, Paul. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I definitely hope that this was very helpful for people. I think this is such an important topic and such a relevant topic, but not a lot of discussion has been done really going in depth on the topic. And let us know if you spot those brands that have clinical studies. We want to see you guys using the education from today's episode. Thank you, Paul, so much for schooling everyone and you know explaining the importance of these clinical studies. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege and an honor just to be able to share the work that we're doing. And I hope that it is helpful for folks out there skincare shopping. Yeah, and hopefully next time we have this conversation, we'll be in LA. <laughs> yes, we're, we'll be in LA. And we also, reminder, we love fragrance. And we'll smell good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to smell good while we're there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, enjoy your morning, okay? Thanks, yes, Paul. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please leave us a review if this topic helped you feel smarter, calmer, and more confident about your beauty decisions. You can engage with us more personally on Instagram. See you next episode.